0: Well, good evening. Take your Bibles, if you will, as we turn to the book of Ruth together. And as we do that, I just want to give just a brief uh, commercial, as it were, a request for your prayer. Uh, This week we will be headed to Mason, as we've heard a couple times throughout over the last couple weeks. Uh, We'll be headed to Mason. We'll be there Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday as a team, a VBS team we Will be conducting Vacation Bible School for Fellowship Bible Church. That's where the Weavers are at. If you hadn't heard that, he is uh, interim pastor there, filling in the pulpit, waiting for a, a new full time pastor to come. And so continue to be in prayer for Fellowship Bible Church. A great opportunity to partner alongside them and bless and encourage them uh, through Vacation Bible School. And uh, with that comes various challenges. And today, this afternoon, we've been uh, mitigating some of those challenges so be in prayer for that as we're trying to navigate through as you're trying to get one vbs here put it in a truck and a trailer and haul it halfway across the state and take the people there there's some logistics that go into that that are not part of a normal vacation bible school so be in prayer for that as we try to navigate all the difficulties of doing so and then pray for the kids who are there uh, we want to impact that community for the sake of Christ. We want Fellowship Bible Church to have a resounding testimony of godliness and holiness in that community and a place where it's safe for kids to come, for kids' programs. And so be in prayer for that as well. Uh, this is their first venture into this. They've not done kids' ministries before. And so uh, we want them to be well positioned to be able to handle kids' ministries in the years to come. And so all those are prayer requests. Uh, It's a great opportunity for us as a church to use our giftedness and learn how to be better evangelists and uh, better stewards of what we have here as a church. And so be in prayer for this team as they go. Pray for their holiness and their protection and opportunities to serve and lead uh, children to Christ uh, this next week in another part of our state. Uh, So with that, we are moving in. Uh, to the book of Ruth again and really we are launching in. we started over uh, two weeks ago now we started into the book of Ruth we got some background information and we understand the kinsman redeemer and some of the elements that we're going to see developed throughout the narrative of Ruth and then last week we jumped in and saw the background information as far as the circumstances are concerned the location as well as the location where it should have been and where Uh, And some of the characters, we introduced ourselves to the majority of the characters that we're going to find throughout the book. As we get into really the problem, the arrival of the problem, we see the decision of three widows. And those decisions are such that we're going to have opportunities to uh, join in with them and perhaps recognize how to make more wise decisions as believers following after the things of our great God. And so with that, uh, nearly 200 years ago, Thomas Jefferson wrote this in a letter, which he was writing to a friend. He said this, see if you agree with this, the art of life is the avoiding of pain. I don't agree with that, but I do agree with that. <laughs> uh, I agree with that when I'm sitting in the dentist chair. Do you agree with that? And the, the, the art of life is get me out of here without causing any pain. Don't you love it when they, they stick their whole hand inside your mouth? And they say, open up. I'm like, I have. And nothing else goes in, trust me. Or they take the needle and say, this isn't going to hurt. Yeah, right. Or you hear the drill in the background get started up. You're like, it hurts me already and it's not even close to my mouth. So we understand. I'm one, I have an aversion to pain. I don't like pain. I will seek to do what I can to avoid it, but I don't agree with Thomas Jefferson when he said the art of life is the avoiding of pain. I think there's far more to it, and I think there's lessons that can be learned through pain. And that is where we're going to spend some time this evening. How do you deal with and make decisions in times of immense heartache, loss, and pain? These times that are very difficult, these crossroads that you arrive at in the moments where pain intersects with a decision that needs to be made. How do you make those decisions? How do you, how do you respond in a biblical sense? A biblical sense in not that the example is found in Scripture, but that it is the pattern that you are to follow. One of three responses is very common, and we're going to see this in the three widows decision each of these three represent the decisions of a specific widow but they also represent the way that we are often willing to make decisions and so we're going to see those unfold for us tonight as we begin in this book that is so vitally important and i want to read uh, the majority of chapter one and then we're going to ask the lord's blessing on our time in his word so we begin in verse six and by the way as we read. I want you to follow through because we're going to follow the widows. We're not going to follow the line uh, going, in other words, verse by verse. We will through Naomi's testimony, but then we're going to come back and pick up the two daughter-in-law's testimony as well, and we're just going to go back through the narrative and follow through where it fits. So uh, don't think and don't anticipate us going verse by verse, word by word. We will by the time we're done, but we're going to move through chronologically through the widow and then back through for the next widow and then the following and so that's how we're going to follow so have that in mind as you uh follow along as i read beginning in verse six of chapter one of the book of ruth scripture says then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of moab for she had heard in the fields of moab that the lord had visited his people and giving them and given them food she said May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death separates me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time and His Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to these events in the book of Ruth, and culturally we are distant from them. We don't understand certain elements, naturally, because we don't have the same practices as far as marriage is concerned and uh, the family lines. But we certainly understand the grief and the decision-making that comes in this time of pain. So tonight, as we spend time in this portion of Scripture, remind us of how we need to be responding, how we need to make decisions in the midst of these crises That your name would be glorified, that we would follow after you as we follow through the example and the testimony of these three widows. Lord, there are lessons here for us to learn even as we set the stage for the broader lesson and the great joy of the kinsman redeemer to come in the following chapters. But yet there is still much for us to glean here in chapter 1, so I pray that you'd give us understanding hearts, willingness to uh, investigate and to look into your word, to see that things we hear tonight are of your word. We pray that you'd give me the words to speak, that they indeed would be from you. Give us hearts to listen and to follow and obey, that your name would be glorified in it. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the time we can spend here this evening, and we ask your grace upon it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This evening, we're going to follow through with the three widows. And the first is Naomi's conclusions. And that's really where we're going to spend the majority of our time tonight, because... Naomi is the one that's going to help us set the stage for the pieces that follow in Orpha's testimony and as well as in Ruth's. And so in setting that stage, we begin with Naomi's conclusions and we go back to verse 6. And she starts here by saying goodbye. So we back up a little bit. Ten years prior, as the book of Ruth begins to open up, we recognize that Elimelech had been... Uh, In the land of Judah, in Bethlehem, he had uh, tried to raise crops. Evidently, things weren't going very well. He looks up, looks across the Dead Sea, across the Jordan River, and he sees that in the land of Moab, there's green grass. That the flocks seem to be doing well, and that the people seem to be successful. While he looks around, and his lawn is crunching, (laughs) all the pasture land for his sheep is gone. The harvest that would be anticipated not only had the famine of the Lord, uh, the drought that had come with it, but also you had the Midianites who were coming through and marauding and taking any harvest that there was away with them. So even if they could get something to grow, they'd barely get it to the threshing floor when here would come the marauders of the Midianites and take away everything that they had. Remember, That this is the period of the time of the judges and likely around the time of Gideon. And so therefore, if this is of the time of Gideon or any time during the period of the judges, which we know that it is, it says that it is, that this was a time in which the Lord was using famine uh, to teach the people of Israel to return back to him. Not to flee the land of Israel, but to flee their sinful, idolatrous ways and return to the Lord. That's what should have been happening. But Elimelech chose to leave. Ten years has gone by, and Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons had left Bethlehem, had left Judah, had begun, as we saw in the first five verses, to sojourn in the land of Moab, but they then decided to stay, and we saw the progression of the language, that they sojourned, and they remained, and they lived there ten years. Ten years has gone by, and we began in verse six. Naomi had left Bethlehem with her husband and two sons in anticipation of greener pastures. But in Moab, her sons had gotten married, so now she's added two. She has two daughters-in-law, but her husband dies, followed by the death of her two sons. Ten years goes by, and Naomi, ten years removed from Bethlehem, begins to pack up all of her things And head back to Bethlehem. In their world and in their culture, there's several cultural elements that we need to draw into the text that is before us. We don't have a lot of time to do it tonight, but we are going to highlight many of them. In their world and culture, the loss of a husband was felt deeper than just the loss of companionship. The pain went deeper than sorrow. These deaths not only threatened their future happiness on earth, but their ability to even survive at all. Literally, the breadwinner, the source of inheritance, the source of income, the source of identity, and the source of companionship was gone. So sorrow was cutting. The pain was real. There was no uh, 401k or IRA. There was no backup plan seemingly without any mention or mention of a pause, Naomi hears that the famine has relented in Bethlehem, and she's headed back. There does not seem to be any uh, delay. In fact, it's probable that her second son has just passed away in verse 5, between verse 5 and verse 6. The time has not been a great expanse of time, and Naomi hears that things are better in Bethlehem. And so, as often as the case what led them to Moab to begin with the grass is greener on the other side of the fence so we're going back across the fence. And so that is where Naomi begins to head. Eventually uh, as she begins to head there the three of them traveling together it says in verse 6 then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab for she had heard the fields of Moab uh, in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Do you catch where Naomi's at? Naomi's in despair. She's trying to feed her family. She's in the fields of Moab. She should not have been in the fields of Moab. If anything, she should have been in the fields of Bethlehem. But had she remained in Bethlehem, there is a very strong probability that all of the consequences of their sin of leaving the land of Israel, going to the Moabites, whom they were not supposed to have any interaction with, that would actually exclude them from the assembly of the Lord... Had she remained in Bethlehem with Elimelech, all of these consequences most likely would not have transpired. But here she is in the fields of a foreign land, gleaning what was left over for them to eat. You might think it's strange, and it is a a bit when we look at verse 6, that they're traveling together. And uh, this is a, a customary thing. But you might think it's strange that they suddenly get to a spa, and after traveling a certain number of days, or a day or two, Naomi looks at her daughters-in-law and says, okay, go away now. There's a, there's a cultural element, and we're going to understand that here as well. It's customary. <clears throat> it's customary for hosts. So if you were to visit a, a near Middle Eastern family, it would be customary for you to come in and enjoy a meal with them, receive the hospitality that is there, and then the host would journey with you at least a day or so away from the tent or from the house. So you would have company to get you started on your journey, and you would journey with them a day or so, and then the sojourner would continue on, and the hosts would return to their land, and that is apparently what Naomi is doing. She tells her daughters-in-law, I'm going back to Bethlehem, let us get up and we're going to go. It's a three-day's journey from Moab to Bethlehem. And so uh, within a day or two, they likely would have arrived at the Dead Sea or the Jordan River. And coming to that border, as they stop there, Naomi now looks and says, your hosting duties have been completed. Go back to your mother's house. It may also, and we find this, in the notice where the text says this, in verses uh, 8 and 9, verse verse 7 says, So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her do- uh, two daughters-in-laws, uh, Go return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And so here we have Naomi arrive here, and it seems interesting it seems as this continues to get stranger a little bit she has arrived now to the Jordan River or wherever they're going to cross and she turns to her daughter and daughters-in-law and says go back to your mother's house does that not sound interesting why your do- why your mother's house why not your father's house so some commentators have said ah here clearly uh, their fathers had passed away and so their fathers are, are dead and so there's just the mothers who are alive. But I don't think that's what's going on. Culturally, that wouldn't be necessarily so. Perhaps, maybe. But there's another cultural element that we must get out of this, and I believe that this is what Naomi is saying to her daughter's-in-law. It doesn't mean that Orpha's and Ru- Orpha and Ruth's fathers had been deceased. It actually refers specifically to the mother's place. What is her role? And the mother's role in the near Middle Eastern culture was to help arrange the marriages of her daughters. Those would take place in her bedchambers, actually, and she would arrange the weddings for her daughters. And so, in essence, what Ruth is saying to her daughters-in-law is, go back and remarry. Go back to the drawing boards. Go back to your mothers so that they can find new suitable husbands for you. And by doing so, Naomi has taken another step in disobedience against the things of the Lord. She was supposed to use the kinsman-redeemer rule and law. She was supposed to have the daughters-in-law come back with her and fulfill the role that they would have had in raising up an heir in the line of Elimelech. But she says, don't. I think the weight of Scripture would support that idea that she's sending them off to get remarried, because, uh, and they were supposed to be remarried. That was the point of the kinsman-redeemer rule and law. So the point was to raise up an heir. But she's sending them back to Moab. Go back to Moab. Get away from me. And the rest of what she says, you can begin to sense her bitterness. And what she says is, can I raise up two more sons that you would raise up another heir, even if I could remarry? And the answer to that is clearly no. But Naomi spends considerable, try- considerable time rather, trying to convince these two young women that there's no hope, there's nothing for them in the land of Israel, so just go back and start over. Essentially, Naomi is telling these two women, you have your whole lives ahead of you. Get married again, raise a family, stay in the land of Moab. Without hope, without security, or much of a future, all of the women, in verse 9, openly weep together. This wasn't a weeping of separation. This was a despair that included separation that included the loss of security that included the loss of all hope that included nothing for the future they are truly at a crossroads this isn't just one damsel in distress kind of story we've talked about the the fairy tale beginning almost of the book and the way that it opens up almost as if it sounds like once upon a time we understand these are real events and That's the way that the book kind of opens, and the details of it kind of unfold like that. But this isn't one damsel in distress. This is three, three widows who have lost everything. And here at a crossroads, we are given a textbook lesson on three classic responses to pain, disillusionment, and sorrow. We see three responses to that. We're going to see the response of Naomi. She's saying goodbye but she wallows in self-pity. She wallows in self-pity. Continue on in the text. We begin in uh, verse 10 and follow through to verse 14. The scripture says, And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpha kissed her daughter-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Here we sense... Naomi's self-pity, and we're going to pull back some of the layers of this onion, as it were. When we studied the definition of each of the names of the characters that we had met along the way, we left two names out, the two names that have been named in the book. We looked at all the names of Elimelech, and we looked at the son's names, and we looked at Ruth and Orpha's name, but we left out Naomi and Boaz. We'll get to Boaz later, but Naomi's name means gracious one. But she's certainly not living that way now. She's certainly not doing what she's supposed to be doing now. She has become embittered. The graves of the three men in her life are evidenced in the age lines that now crease across her face ten years after having left Bethlehem. We're going to see it in the response of those in Bethlehem as she comes in and they barely recognize her ten years later. She has concluded that it would be best if she were left alone. Four times she will tell these young women to leave her. Four times. To this point of what we have read so far, she says, leave me. The first is found in verse 11. Notice she says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? The first reason is found here in verse 11. She's an old woman now, and there's no reason for them to be bound to her any longer. There's no hope of husbands. And again, we have the, the law and the instruction of the law that there was to be a child born and the oldest daughter at the death of the son uh, before a child. Then she would marry the next son, and so on, down the, down the line until an heir could be born. But... Naomi says, there's no hope. You can't do any of the law. You can't fulfill the law. And so therefore, go your own way. She continues, verses 12 and 13. She says, turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Ah, Now we see the real reason. Peeling back the layers of this self pity, she's convinced that God no longer loves her. And that God is no longer on her side. And and either we should, why should Orpha or Ruth, for that matter, hang around? If If God is dealing with Naomi in this way, let God just deal with Naomi in this way, and you two go away. Frankly, and you know, perhaps by personal testimony and certainly by the testimony of others, you know that you reach a point where you're convinced that God doesn't love you anymore. Pain brings that. Suffering and anguish bring that emotion, that feeling up in our finite flesh. We feel as if God has turned his back on us, and that's where Naomi is at. I left Bethlehem. I had my family, I'm in Moab, I have nothing. She's actually going to say those words later on in the text. And if you believe that God doesn't love you anymore, listen carefully because this is where the damage begins to happen, you're going to find it impossible to be loved by anybody else. And so therefore you'll begin to push others away. Others will try, they will attempt to demonstrate love to you, and you will determine that since God doesn't love you, they can't love you, and therefore no one, you're unlovable to everyone. That's where Naomi is at. And then one more. Let's go a little further. Because this is very difficult for us to understand, it's a challenge for us, but notice what she says in uh, the following verses. We're only going to read a portion of them um, because the rest of it will fill in, in other details. But beginning in verse 14 and 15, they, uh, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. I want to stop there for just a moment. As tragic as it is to this point, verses 14 and 15, Naomi actually goes a step beyond that. She encourages these women. Orpha's already gone over the hill. But she's encouraged these women to return to the idols of the Moabites. She is so desperate that she's re- she is insisting that they return to the idols of the Moabites, her self-pity is stated three times against the Lord. Verse thirteen, which we saw a moment ago, it says this at the end of verse thirteen: "Know, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. I know the Lord is against me, but it makes me even more bitter that the hand of the Lord is against you because of me." That's that's that statement. That's the first statement. Her self-pity is exemplified there in verse thirteen. Then in verse 20, which we have not read here since the beginning, verse 20 says, And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Change my name. Don't call me Gracious One anymore. I don't want to hear it. Because God has dealt bitterly with me, I don't even want my name to remind me of the grace of God, because there is no grace in God. Verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? One self-pity statement after the other self-pity statement after the other self-pity statement. So you can respond to grief and tragedy and self-pity, and that is where Naomi has responded. All that to say, or all that is saying, rather, all of her complaints all of her self-pity is saying my god has failed me he's the one who's dropped the ball go on back to your gods perhaps they'll treat you better naomi has really concluded that god isn't really worth following and we see it when she says to ruth follow your sister-in-law back over the hill to worship the gods of the moabites god really isn't worth following She says, I've been to the graveyard three times now. And it's obvious that God doesn't care. That's where she is at. All Naomi's former friends and acquaintances, as we come into verse 20, and, uh, we, which we read just a moment ago, let's pick up verse 19. And uh, she says this, so the two of them went on. That is after Ruth had determined to go with her, which we'll come back and pick those details up in a minute. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? They're looking at her, and certainly the grief has aged Naomi. And ten years has also aged Naomi, but it's been the grief. and, And when they look at Naomi, they say, Is this Naomi? Is this you? And she responds, Don't call me that. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. (laughs) That's my name. For the Lord, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. He made me. And that's an interesting statement as we think of what Naomi is saying. In essence, she is saying, he made me this way. He took my name, gracious one, and he made me, Mara, bitter. He made me this way. It's his fault. Beloved, there is a significant danger when we, in our crossroad decisions, in the times of hurt and pain, in the times of decision-making, decide to make decisions based upon self-pity. Let us not be Naomi. Think of it from the overarching view. Naomi is on the ground level. She's the one picking grain out of the fields of Moab when her husband has died and her two sons have died. Her retirement plan is gone. Her meal plan for the day is gone. Her livelihood is gone. Her home is gone. And she is bitter. But nowhere, nowhere in the entire narrative to this point does Naomi admit or repent of her sin with Elimelech. She does not say, I have violated the law, lived outside of the land of Israel, in the land of the Moabites, outside of the assembly of the Lord, not returned for 10 years. She's not returning back with Elimelech to offer sacrifices. She has lived outside of the land of Israel, knowingly separating herself from the things of the Lord. And then when it comes time for her to confront the issues of the consequences of that sin, she says, God did this to me. God's the one that caused this. Continuing on, not only had they broken the law to live outside the land of Israel and live in the land of Moab, which was a second to that, but they had allowed their sons to violate the law of Moses in marrying foreign women. And so, there was clear, definitive statements. Do not let your sons marry the daughters of the Moabites. So, there's no confession. Naomi does not say, I know that we have sinned against God, and now we have paid a dreadful price. She says, don't call me gracious one. Call me bitter because God made me bitter. Beloved, God does not make you bitter. Self-pity makes you bitter. But God doesn't make you bitter. You can respond to tragedy. You can respond to these decisions, these crossroads, with self-pity. Or you can follow Orpha's direction. Let's see what Orpha does. Orpah originally begins committed to Naomi. Look in verse 10. We've studied, we've looked through this already, but let's go back. We'll look into verse 10. Verse 10, and uh, Naomi has reached, again, we're in the borderlands now, wherever that is, uh, near the Jericho, or uh, probably near Jericho, on the Jordan River, and they've reached this land and as they get to this land, Naomi looks to her daughters-in-law and, says, and tells them, your hosting duties are done. We've seen all that. Go home. Orpah says in verse 10, no, we will return with you and your people. That is an admirable statement and an awareness of the customs of Israel. So it was not as if Naomi and Elimelech didn't have some sort of influence in training their kids, their sons, to pour into their families Jewish customs and traditions, but they had forgotten to mention the work of the graciousness of God. But they certainly had poured in some of the requirements of the law. No, we're going to go with you. We're going to become, because we've married in now, we're going to become Israelite. Orpha must now make a decision. And so as she's making this decision, she is determined in verse 10 to stay But when Naomi lays out all that she's about to lose, she returns to her home, counting the cost as too high. Notice the insistence of Naomi. And it is all through this. We've read it. It's verses 10 through 15, but I'm going to stop at 15 here in just a minute. Uh, She has told them, you're not going to get another husband. You're not, at least from the line of Elimelech. You're not going to be able to you're not going to have any hope you're not going to have any security you're not going to have any possessions the decision that naomi is pushing orpha into is a decision that will have eternal consequences and again we return to verse 15 and she said see your sister-in-law that is orpha has gone back to her people and to her gods orpha makes a decision by verse 15 that will have an eternal consequence She's going to follow after the gods of the Moabites. J. Vernon McGee wrote this about Ruth and Orpha, that they demonstrate two kinds of members in the church. The professors, in other words, those who profess to know Christ, and the possessors, those who actually know Christ. Orpha made a profession of faith, but Ruth possessed genuine faith. So you can respond to grief, to heartache, and to this crossroads of decision by avoidance and deflection. And that is what Orpha does. In verse 15, Naomi's assistance reveals that Orpha had counted the cost as too great to stay with Naomi. I'm going to flee. I'm going to avoid. Many do the same with Christ. They want to follow Christ. They want to be those who are uh, named among Christians. But once the cost of discipleship is understood, many become professors of Christ and not possessors of Him. Orpha turns her back, or rather, turns back to the darkness of paganism. And topping the hill to the east, disappears from the pages of Scripture. What a sad, eternal consequence. And finally, we have Ruth's determination. Her determination. And specifically, she has a determination of the future with Naomi. And this is where we see that Naomi should have lifted her head and saw the graciousness of God at work. Was Naomi gracious? No. But she has a daughter-in-law who is. And that's about to be revealed. Naomi urges Ruth to leave. Verse 16, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where I go, Or for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death separates me from you. Ruth has her own decision to make. She's now at the crossroad. So we followed through. We've seen two of the three widows, all dealing with intense pain, sorrow, heartache, All to this point, having dealt with it in a different way. Naomi with self-pity, Orpha with deflection and avoidance. And now it's Ruth's turn. In verse 15, you can almost see the expression on Naomi's face. We don't know what Naomi looked like, but you can almost see it. In verse 15, she says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Ruth is clinging to Naomi and Naomi looks at Ruth and says, why are you still here? You should have left with your sister-in-law. Go back. Go back to the gods over there. Clearly the God of Israel is not worthy of worship. He's not worthy of you. He's he's made me bitter. Go back. Leave. Leave. You can see the expression. You've seen it in others. Like you're having a conversation with them and they turn and they look someplace else and they look back and like, you're still here? <laughs> I thought you would have left. That was the expression that Naomi turns to Ruth with. But notice Ruth's decision. Ruth decides. And her decision is filled with grace and it's filled with mercy, it's filled with confession. Ruth tells Naomi that no matter what the future holds, and no matter where their future takes them, she will stay by Naomi's side. Imagine what she just signed on for. This was no snap decision. In fact, there is a a rehearsed feel to what Ruth tells to Naomi. Even though it's the prophet Samuel who's writing the book of Ruth, there still seems to be a a rehearsed answer, a well-thought-out answer. This is not a whim or a sudden impulse. Ruth knows that Naomi has nothing to offer her except poverty and hardship. And Ruth has been very clear about that. She has not tried to hide it. She's not said, oh, it'll be great in Bethlehem. We'll have good friends, and we'll have food to eat, and we'll have a house to stay in. And, oh, Limelech has some family there. You're going to love them. That's not what Ruth said, or Naomi said. Naomi said, God has dealt bitterly with me, and I, I'm just, I'm just going to go back to Bethlehem, and whatever God's going to do, God's going to do. And he's not worthy of being worshipped and served anyway. Go away. Go away, Ruth. She has absolutely nothing, that is, Ruth has absolutely nothing to gain by going with Naomi. And she has everything to lose, which isn't anything. She's already lost everything. The most remote thing in her future is the sound of wedding bells. And she's a young woman. In an age where women couldn't hold property, didn't have the ability to make an income to survive, she was signing up. For a life of poverty. And we typically skip ahead, anticipating the next chapter. Anticipating what's going to happen next. Because that's what we do in a fairy tale kind of situation. We we get into the distress and let's get to the good parts. (laughs) Let's get into the conflict and then we'll get through the conflict and we'll get to the, the resolution of the conflict. And that is what we tend to do. And so we we typically do that through this, but let us not forget what Naomi, or what rather what Ruth has given up to follow Naomi. She's lost her husband. She's giving up her country. She's lost not only the country identity, but she's lost her people. She's lost her gods, and she's lost her security. That's what she's giving up. Yet, Ruth found what mattered most. Did you hear it in her confession? She said it twice. She says this, At the end of verse 16, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Naomi would not make that confession. The one who should have known better would not say to Ruth, you need to get to know my God. Let me tell you about my God. Instead, she arrives in Bethlehem a couple days later, having uh, all, all of this having transpired before her. She arrives in Bethlehem and says, God has dealt bitterly with me. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Can you imagine Ruth? And my God is your God. She doesn't say it just once. She says it twice. Notice at the end of verse uh, 17 as well. It says, Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord Do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth knows something about the God of Israel, and she makes it personal. She made it personal. Twice in this speech to Naomi, she refers personally to the God of Israel. Naomi feels that God has abandoned her. But Ruth, in sorrow, turns her eyes to the God of Israel. You can respond in one of three ways to great tragedy, great grief, and sorrow it can be self pity, it can be avoidance and deflection, or you can turn your eyes to our great God and Savior. That's what Ruth does. And because of that, the graciousness of God will be demonstrated to the one who calls herself bitter now. Three, wind, three widows, three different ways of handling the pain of life that they just couldn't avoid. Orpha departs. Her shallow faith based on circumstances. Naomi returns. Her weak faith based by circumstance, or biased rather, by circumstances. And Ruth arrives. Her new faith seeing far beyond present circumstances. Beloved, we're going to encounter trials of various kinds, difficult and sorrowful, though they may be. God is at work. In and through them. So, unlike Thomas Jefferson, who found that it was the greatest goal in life to avoid pain, I would really like to know how he did that when in a culture where you ride horses all the time. But his, his desire was to avoid pain, he saw that as the chief end. Ruth would say, Don't avoid it, but look to the author and perfecter of our faith. Ruth would look to the things of the Lord. May that be our testimony. There's a lot to learn yet in the book of Ruth. We haven't even gotten into it. We've just been introduced to it. We've seen the the bad circumstances that lead up to chapter 2. Next week, next week, we're going to, Lord willing, we're going to meet the last named individual in the book. And we're going to see... Uh, Boaz arrive onto the scene. So we're starting to get that turn uh, that you see in uh, fairy tale type stories, but we recognize again the authenticity of and the factual elements of these actually taking place, these events actually taking place, and God teaching us through them valuable lessons to follow. Let us close tonight in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads thankful that we have been given such a clear example. There's There's a lot we could study in this first chapter of the book of Ruth. But I praise you that we've been given a clear example, a a strong testimony of how we ought to deal with grief and sadness and sorrow. Lord, it is pretty easy for us to be those like Naomi and shake our fists and say, God has dealt bitterly with me. We look around us and we see the successes and a lack of suffering of others, and we say, why why me? Lord, I pray that instead of wallowing in the self-pity, as we see Naomi do, and rather than the departing deflection that we see Orpha do, that would, cost, that would have an eternal cost. I pray that we would follow the testimony of Ruth who endured the sufferings, endured the sorrow and the grief, and would provide, even as a Moabite woman, would provide us a clearer picture of the grace of God than the Israelite woman did. Ultimately, Lord, we praise you for your grace and mercy demonstrated to Naomi. She doesn't even yet know it in the text. Lord, we praise you that you are faithful you your loving, your merciful, loving kindness to us has no end. But it abounds in your holiness and in your righteousness. So therefore, Lord, we desire to be more and more like Christ. And we have the example of Ruth to show us one step of that way. Praise you for this testimony that has been laid out for us this evening. We ask your blessing as we depart from here. May you receive the glory and honor as we put into practice what we've learned and studied here today, both in the morning service and Sunday school and now in the evening service, that your name would be glorified more in our lives, greater and greater every day. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. And it's in Christ's name that we pray them. Amen.